Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. Uh, today, I have the pleasure to welcome David Pakman, who hosts the David Pakman Show, an internationally syndicated television, radio, and internet political program. Uh, he started the show in 2005 at the age of 21 and, and began hosting at a local radio station as a hobby. Uh, but by 2011, uh, the show has aired on 100 stations and outlets, and he was for some time uh, the youngest nationally syndicated political host. Uh, well, Mr. Pakman, thanks so much for joining me today. It's, it's a great pleasure to be able to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I guess we can, before we dive into some more questions about the media landscape and uh, politics today, would you mind just telling us a little bit more about your journey with your, with your show over the years and also uh, your unique business model right now? Because I know you have a large subscriber base and that's uh, how you get the message out. Yeah, so the show started just as like a single community radio station in Northampton, Massachusetts when I was a student an undergrad student. And then I just kind of kept it going as I was in graduate school. And um, eventually what was a one station radio show became a syndicated radio show and then a syndicated radio show and a YouTube channel and a TV show. And it sort of grew over time. And now it is um, you know, on multiple platforms. My business model is one of, of diversifying revenue streams so that we're not too at risk if any one revenue stream were to fail. That's, that's sort of the business side of it. But from a political perspective, the show is just, uh, it, it's based around my views, which happen to be um, uh, socially democratic left-wing views by any reasonable assessment. Um, since you mentioned about your political views, maybe we can uh, jump right in. Uh, in the past couple of months, there's just so much I guess, sociopolitical turmoil and also many recent developments, whether it's the COVID-19 crisis or uh, the, the, the um, Black Lives Matter movement. So I guess, how would you categorize the state of this sociopolitical discourse or consciousness of this nation right now? And by discourse, I kind of mean the, the general norm that dictates how people interact with each other or basically the way that politics is being talked about uh, in, in the media or in private, because I, I, I guess among all the famous podcast hosts, Ezra Klein would probably say that, you know, we're making strides towards progress. Uh, Eric Weinstein would probably say we're in the middle of a cultural revolution and, and Ben Shapiro would probably say we're in the middle of chaos or, or, or so wh which part of the spectrum would you be on? Where do you think the country is at right now? Interestingly, I am very much not anywhere in line with Ben Shapiro's politics, but I <laughs> tend to agree with him that it's chaos. Um, but but maybe for different reasons than than he thinks. So I mean, my my kind of thirty thousand foot view right now is that over the last I mean, really since Ronald Reagan and the uh, idea of the welfare queen with ten kids driving a Cadillac from from that point forward, we've seen a sort of debasing and coarsening of political discourse, anti-intellectualism, pseudo-intellectualism. Uh, and it pervades almost every aspect of uh, of society. Um, you know, there's a debate as to whether it pervades academia. Maybe academia has some more resistance to it. But if you look at the way that the current president speaks, if you look at what counts as an argument and what counts as, as valid debate, uh, if you look at the disconnect that exists between discourse and facts, where facts no longer 
I, I, I hate to say are no longer necessary because in, in a kind of real sense, of course, facts are necessary to have serious policy debates, but facts aren't necessary for many in the United States to come to conclusions, conclusions that are very difficult to change and that link directly to how people vote. So I think that the, the state of affairs is, is very dire right now. I guess to quickly follow up on that part about facts, um, I personally worry, I guess, not the fact that people do not use facts to arrive at certain conclusions, but rather that they can't find any facts they want. Um, I mean, I guess Kellyanne Conway famously used the phrase alternative facts, but I guess in today's world, alternative facts do exist, right? You can literally Google any kind of facts or statistics that you can find that supports climate change or does not support climate change and such and so on. So um, do you worry that the fact that Google or, or this kind of uh, increasingly frictionless access to all kinds of information is, is also kind of at play right now, eroding the, the social discourse or changing the it's way it's hugely at play it's hugely at play but i think that if we you know there are there are folks who focus their analysis merely on social media algorithms filter bubbles and echo chambers kind of creating a never-ending feedback loop where if you already have a certain view uh you are likely to continue encountering news articles and opinion that reinforces that view and it creates this insular bubble, as, as the name uh, suggests. Of course, that's part of the problem, but those algorithms only have the power that they do, and those filter bubbles are only as insular as they are because we have a very significant lack of fundamental critical thinking and media literacy skills, which could and should be taught starting probably uh, to 12-year-olds. And if you bring that framework into the political space and young adulthood, you're far less likely ever to fall into these rabbit holes that are dictated by social media algorithms. So yes, uh, I consider the online, you know, the frictionless access to whatever perspective you want, that's uh, a consequence of the deeper problem. Uh, I guess maybe we could go slightly deeper than that, not just in terms of education, because I, I, you've uh, famously said uh, on your show and also in your other interviews that there's a difference between, I guess, getting passionate about universal health care uh, versus shutting down abortion clin clinics across the country. So, so you, you refuse to draw kind of a false equivalence there between, for example, the, the extreme far left and extreme far right. And, um, but, but to what extent do you, do you believe that you are correct? To what extent do you believe in um, the set of facts that you have access to? To, to what extent uh, how have you arrived at your set of beliefs and, and believe that you are more correct than, than the other side? Well, before we jump into that, just one correction, you know, you, you kind of, I think part of the problem is the way that the Overton window has been falsely established. You, you mentioned as an example of far right, ban all abortions, and as an example of far left, universal health care. Europe would not think that universal health care is far left. So I think it's really important that we, you know, in this conversation, not fall into a, a sort of a false uh, framing of, of the political spectrum. But listen, I'm not special in any way in that I am subject to the same cognitive biases and heuristics that anybody who understands, you know, behavioral economics uh, and, and uh, psychology would, would be uh, subject to confirmation bias, filter bubbles, uh, you know, all, all of, there's no question about it. 
my goal is that understanding these would better enable me to try to uh, take a sort of a outside perspective and say, hold on a second, I, I am aware of what these biases are. Let's see if I can pull myself out of them and try what's the strongest case I can make for the other side, for example, or what, what is the weakest part of the facts I'm using to come to this conclusion. And again, I think that if you are exposed to the basics of epistemology and critical thinking and media literacy at an early age, hopefully you integrate this. And it's sort of like a personal scientific method, right? Where different from the way many um, uh, religious environments work, the scientific method encourages proving wrong the pre-existing beliefs. And I, I try to be open to that as a starting point. I, I just think it's really hard to get to that place where people are educated in, in, in terms of media literacy or, or critical thinking. For example, I go to Princeton. I have a lot of friends who, who, are, who would be considered, you know, Ivy League educated, you know, very well educated, very privileged students. And I think uh, a lot of times, the way we derive, we get most of our facts are from like Instagram stories, Instagram posts uh, that, that obviously are have certain often have progressive messages that are helpful messages uh, that are trying to shed light on some kind of issue that is, that is helpful to the society. However, after all, they are, you know, quote unquote, simple statistics that are, you know, that do not really get to the bottoms of the layers and layers of the issues. And, and, and I worry that because this is even at the nation's top university. And I, I just don't see a way out in terms of how um, social media or, or, or can, can, can people can pull themselves out of those, this kind of loop. Yeah, I mean, there's no easy solution. I mean, every aspect of society is tailor-made for, you know, you look at Instagram and 15-second Instagram stories that people are getting facts from. You look at the presidential debates where there are going to be, you know, 90-second, 60-second, even 30-second answer periods. I mean, that's just at every level, there's this debasement and, and oversimplification of really complex issues, and there's really no one solution to it. But that doesn't mean that motivated individuals can't get closer to what we might objectively call the truth. I mean, one example I remember from my uh, um, sort, of, sort of the last few, few years of politics is the issue of the gender pay gap, which is a very contentious issue. And you have some on the right who say there is no gender pay gap. You have on the left for a long time this number of 77 cents on the dollar that was bandied about. And Intuitively, we could say probably there's something wrong with both of those perspectives, but saying that the truth is probably in the middle is often not going to get us where we need to be. And when we did it, you know, we spent a month researching this and really looking at the serious scholarship on it for, for a, a piece that we did. And what we found was there is a gender pay gap. Um, you, of course, have to be comparing the same type of work. Uh, and the same level of career experience. And once you do that, it's more like 91 cents on the dollar. And of those nine cents, some portion is likely due to gender discrimination. So the right was wrong, 77 cents on the dollar is wrong, but we don't just say the truth must be right in the middle. That's I think where both sides benefit from, from making 
their position as extreme as possible to bring the middle towards their side. And very often that's not, that's not where reality sits. And, and the fact that the, the truth is in the middle does not mean you should not try to come up with helpful policies to adjust and, and make up that the rest of the nice sense, which I, I agree. So I guess the, the follow-up question to this kind of, uh, you said people's attention spans are getting shorter, we're reduced to, um, you know, quick debates rather than, you know, back in Lincoln's time, people go on hours and hours debates on, on, on very sensitive subjects. So um, we're seeing this rise of long-form podcasting. You uh, are part of it. Joe Rogan <laughs> famously does those three, four-hour-long podcasts that millions of people listen to, which is, which is uh, mind-boggling how people can actually go through this kind of long-form conversation. So um, how do you categorize the, the media landscape right now? Because it's being increasingly fractured, and we're seeing this rise of independent media like yourselves. Uh, what are your thoughts on this disruption? Do you think it, it's a positive influence that the more people are having this kind of long-form dialogues uh, finally making up a, a gap in the traditional legacy media? Yeah, I, I think that the availability of, so from a technological standpoint, the internet has lowered barriers to entry where anybody with a microphone can start a pod, anybody with a phone can start a podcast or a channel. And you know, that's great. That That's of course on balance, that's good. Uh, with that, of course, comes the caveat of needing to be prepared to distinguish from what is real and what is not real. We're seeing this with, with written articles and you look at you know fake news that was shared during the 2016 election. It happened to be di over, disproportionately shared by older folks and disproportionately shared by right-wing folks. That's how it was in 2016. Could be different in other times. Um, and uh, I, I think that you know, narrow casting, which is creating a program that might have uh, a much smaller potential audience, but a very engaged one, you know, programs about aviation or programs about chess or billiards or whatever, your total potential audience is smaller, but the costs are lower, the financial sustainability threshold is lower, all of that is fantastic. The darker side of it, of course, is that with relatively few financial resources, programs that look and sound very professional can be put together, even when they are disseminating debunked propaganda, xenophobic and racist ideology, etc. cetera, um, can, I don't wanna use the term trick, but it is in a sense a tricking of people into thinking that it is equivalent in terms of its trustworthiness to an actual well-researched media outlet. And that's sort of a darker side to it. Um, I, I remember you talking on your show how you don't brand your show as a neutral space. You, you say, but I'm being as transparent as I am. I, I reason through my beliefs uh, and I present all my facts and, and uh, basis from which I derive my beliefs to my listeners. And therefore, you have uh, a decent number of people on the right who probably would disagree with you, but because they respect the way you arrive at your beliefs, they, they come listen to your show. So I, I guess your program kind of presents your opinions very front and center. Uh, how do you think talk show hosts or talk shows in general can present their beliefs and, and not compromise on what they really believe in while still being able to offer very coherent arguments and potentially engage with the other side without alienating them or, or demeaning them. So I, I think it's a very tricky balance, right? 
it's there's 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 no recipe for it. I mean, there really isn't. And there are a lot of different, you know, one of the things that you learn when you study media literacy is when we talk about bias, very often people talk about just political bias. Like, are you on the left and pretending to be in the middle? Are you on the right and pretending to be in the middle or whatever? The reality is there's all sorts of different biases that can happen. You can be biased because you have an editor who is uh, ultimately the person who decides you get to talk about this or you don't. So the bias may not be yours. It may be your editor's bias. There can be advertiser bias where you're limited or influenced in what you say or how you say it because of what advertisers have to say. So, you know, we, we don't have to go into every single example, but I think the point is that my, um, priority is just to be transparent in terms of, listen, I'm on the left. There's no advertiser bias. I don't talk to my advertisers. They've never imposed on me. I can or can't talk about this. There is no editor there. You know, the, the, the bias is I'm on the left and that's my perspective. And I think that that transmits a sort of good faith a perspective for argumentation and it doesn't mean we won't disagree but at least we're eliminating some of those other factors um, can we talk a little bit more about i guess your the the relationship between platforms and and hosts like you because in many interviews you've alluded to the ongoing debate over how to regulate this disinformation for example on youtube and um Many years ago, there was this, this famous ad apocalypse thing that, that really happened. It stirred a lot of controversy. And even in this COVID-19 debate, there are people who are on Twitter who initially posted things that are contrary to what the government or CDC or, or New York Times were saying. Uh, and those people, some are later proven to be right, some proven later to be wrong. But I initially personally held the belief that maybe we should let the government uh, take down any disinformation about COVID-19 from Twitter. But later I thought, what if the government was wrong in certain respects, just like how, how Trump or, or, or CDC was initially wrong in some of their assessments. So how do you see this dichotomy? What do you think about uh, a disinformation or potentially this kind of very decentralized uh, mechanism of spreading voices and information? Well, you know, one, one thing to note on that is that a lot of the controversy was not so much about whether the government should be able to take content down, but what's the right standard that the platforms themselves should be using. Because a lot, you know, with the Donald Trump tweets that were flagged as suppressing the vote, for example, that was Twitter's call. Uh, it was not any kind of government entity that was doing that. And these are two different things, right? What power should the government have versus what power should the platform have? I think this is a very complicated thing. And I spoke about this with Joe Rogan, which is I think intuitively a lot of us understand that uh, there's a spectrum in terms of what we consider an open platform, which is you literally allow anything. You allow anything that's not illegal in some way uh, or it's just sort of up to the platform, or it's up to a government, or it's up to some community flagging system. Every single one of those systems could be misused conceivably, and there are major legal questions. And, and you know, if you say, well, here is how Twitter is supposed to run as per the government, what's the legal infrastructure for that? Right now, certainly there's legal infrastructure for if you want to be in the insurance business, here's the, the rules you have to play by. If you want to manufacture vehicles, here's how the auto safety standards are dealt, right? So you would have to create some kind of new infrastructure. And when you do that, it's subject to the whims of the administration. You can say, well, no, no, 
in order to prevent a Republican from doing it one way and then a Democrat from regulating social media another way, you create a nonpartisan commission with three Democrats and three Republicans. Do any of us really feel like that's going to, to, to achieve what we want to achieve? So I think it's a very complex uh, question. Uh, a complex question that you personally would say that you have not arrived at, at a concrete solution or, or? I haven't. No, I really haven't. I mean, I think that, uh, so there's kind of, there's, it's a two-step process we have to go through. The first step is let's really understand what the infrastructure is now. So to say now the government can tell YouTube what videos to keep up or not, there's not a legal infrastructure for that. There just isn't. So right now, businesses like YouTube and Facebook and others have, they terms, and, laws. They have terms and conditions, they can enforce them. The, the limit to that would be if the, the rules are uh, explicitly or implicitly discriminatory on the basis of protected classes. That would exceed the limits right now. So if YouTube decided that they were going to regulate content in a way that effectively discriminates against black people or Sikhs or whatever, then now you've got a legal issue. Then the question becomes, do we want and what would a new legal infrastructure look like and how would it be regulated? And I, I, I just, I don't have, I've not found any satisfactory infrastructure so far. And I guess it, maybe we can limit the scope of the problem a little bit more. Uh, let's just say in this COVID-19 crisis in, in the past six months, back in March at the beginning of the phase when data does, did not seem to be that solid, people didn't have a concrete understanding of what was going on. Uh, and now there are people maybe in Seattle or wherever, different cities, different pockets of people, organizations that start saying, uh, wear masks helps, wear masks don't help. Uh, you should wear this kind of mask. You should, you should not do this and that, all kinds of information uh, or about drugs or whatever. Um, do you think that Twitter or the CDC so, so either, either the private company or the, or the government authority, either a partisan authority or a nonpartisan authority should come in and say, we should flag these, we should take these down because people are reading these things and they, 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 they would die if, if they make the mistake, right? So a couple different things. First of all, I think that for the most part, what we've seen from social media platforms has been good faith. Now, there are some people who will say, you know, YouTube pulled some stuff from some skeptics that, you know, it's unclear whether it was really acting in good faith. Okay, we could debate the edge case, but 99% of what I've seen social media platforms doing has been in good faith trying to mirror what our understanding is at the time of the science. Now, you are accurately pointing out that the view on masks really for political reasons changed where you know they didn't want to create a run on masks but then it was like the masks do work but then now it's unclear okay if things if if the best understanding of reality changes i think it's good that social media platforms would change how they are regulating the content that's good faith that's the scientific method it's an error correction mechanism so i don't really have a problem with that if we believe that they're acting in, in relatively good faith. The, the problem is that, you know, when the president is spreading disinformation, when the science says one thing, even the president's own scientists say one thing, and then the president says the opposite, 
what is it that social media platforms are supposed to do? I think that they always opt in favor of science. That's my view. Um, but you start to get these complicated situations where people start to allege political bias. They start to allege, you know, an agenda, an agenda that is, you know, make things look worse so that Trump loses. That's one that has been, you know, now put forward. Um, you know, then you get into stuff like, uh, well, kinds then, of incentives. That... Yeah, uh, exactly. And so, so that that gets uh, more more complicated. But again. 99% I've seen that the social media platforms have tried to stick to what is the best science we have at the time. Uh, would you say Twitter, I mean, Twitter has been accused of suppressing uh, right-wing voices for a long time. Every time any of those big tech executives go on Capitol Hill, they get grilled by Republican senators and, and Congress people about these things. So uh, from your perspective, or based on the people you talk to, do you think there is a, uh, do, do you think the big tech in Silicon Valley are, are somewhat in any way biased or, or, or even actively consciously, unconsciously suppressing some of the right-wing voices? Well, unconsciously is more difficult to say. I think there's a couple different issues here. First of all, um, you know, a lot of people like to point to the um, employee culture at some of these tech companies to say that these are fundamentally left-wing companies. And, you know, the fact that there's casual Friday or no dress code, or you should really refer to people by the gender pronouns that they prefer. That's, that's sort of called corporate culture. That is different from whether companies fundamentally share an anti-regulation perspective because that's good for uh, profit. And that, that th these are really different things. And this also came up the first time I was on with Joe Rogan, the idea of, you know, Google is a left-wing company. They have these policies about you can't misgender people at work. Well, hold on a second. Look at Google's regulatory record and their lobbying priorities. The, uh, Google is a left-wing company. These are corporations that seek to return, seek a return for their uh, shareholders. Now, then you get into con. Um, and one that's often brought up is Twitter's view on misgendering people. Um, you know, if, if Twitter says at this point, uh, the trans community is part of our community and we're going to have to make some judgment calls, but if you're deliberately misgendering someone who's trans, that's a form of bullying and we're going to do our best to enforce that. The right would say that is anti-right discrimination. Uh, a lot of people would just say, it, it's just like we don't allow bullying on the basis of race and we don't allow bullying on the, racist, on the basis of religion and the world has evolved and we're not going to allow it on the basis of misgendering people. So the, the problem is it, that what counts as bullying is disputed by some. I, I was just talking to a friend that day, and I think it's really interesting that uh, Silicon Valley is liberal, and, and well, California or Silicon Valley are filled with very liberal left-wing people, but a lot as of them- As individuals. Right, as individuals, yes. Uh, but a lot of the right-wing theorists all have roots in California. I mean, whether we, we uh, see it's, it's uh, Eric Weinstein, or, or he, I mean, he's not right-wing, I guess, people that are, counter-narrative, counter-mainstream culture, Peter Thiel, Joe Rogan, even, even someone like Stephen Miller, who is very, very counter-mainstream. So I, 
I guess this also kind of goes back to my initial question about this rise of independent media, which is podcasting, but also within podcasting, there is a growing strand of people that are considered very, very counter narrative, like Joe Rogan. And I, 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 how do you make of this group of people uh, that might not preach the, the most commonly accepted social democratic ideals, uh, but they identify themselves as progressives, where, where, like, like Joe Rogan, where everyone else time they'll say, I, I, I vote for Bernie. Uh, I still want to see social changes, but they're not like uh, Ezra Klein. They, they don't agree with this kind of, you know, overcorrection, pendulum swing to the left and, and uh, radical social change type of stuff. What do you make of this, I, I guess, as a, pod, a podcast host yourself, being in this circle, um, seeing this trend of counterculture, counter-narrative? Well, I mean, one, one thing as a sort of setup is that I question this idea that there is this radical pendulum swing taking place of radical <laughs> social change, you know, and, and when you go there, you're only half a step behind Trump's anarchist cities and, you know, chaos in the streets and, and, you know, all of this type of stuff. I think that one of the things that's tricky for people who occupy these spaces, including in podcasting, if you spend a lot of time on Twitter, Reddit, et cetera, is the same thing that happened during the Democratic primary, which is you start to get a skewed view of what the country is like in general. And support for Bernie Sanders was dramatically overstated on places like Reddit and Twitter. And Joe Biden won the primary by millions of votes. So I think that we would need to check ourselves. And this is why, you know, I have regularly scheduled breaks from online and I'm, you know, reading books and looking at other types of publications to try to not lose touch with the fact that what I see on my subreddit is not America necessarily. Um, so that's sort of one thing. In terms of, you know, counter culture or counter narrative, I think that that's all great. And that's part of what, uh, what the internet has done in terms of lowering the barrier to entry. I would feel better about it if people were more educated and better able to discern what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. So when you start to see, you know, conspiracy movies about Corona documentary, movies, I don't even really call it a documentary, conspiracy <laughs> films, videos about coronavirus spread like wildfire, if you have a more educated population that says, I'm not going, I would be embarrassed to share this on Facebook, you cut a lot of that out. And that's, that's what's on the other side of the risk. I have no doubt that this is a net benefit in total, but we would be much better off if we had a population that was less susceptible to some of this stuff. Counter narrative is great. Conspiracy stuff, not so good, you know? Uh just going back to the very first part of your response when we said you kind of disagree with this, you know, pendulum overswing narrative. Uh, th there's been so much, I guess, talk about this thing in the past couple of months, I guess in the middle of the summer, uh, the Harper letter, people were talking about how acad academia was censoring uh, right wing, wing voices uh, here at Princeton. Um, th there were many students who wrote letters basically saying, yes, Black Lives Matter, but here's the thing, those are campus free speech, whatever. And, and students on the left would say that that's absolute BS, you're, you're dodging the question. W what is this kind of free speech under threat type of thing? So. Um, what do you make of, I guess, that period of, of, of social change, social turmoil? This, I guess, another shift of ra rapid shift of social cultural norm, academic norms. And I guess the second part of the question would be th this narrative about 
overswing of the pendulum because a lot of people do cite evidence of saying it's it's absurd how you your tweet from 20 years ago gets uh, dug up and your somehow career gets destroyed and, and things like that. Yeah, I mean, so the truth is that we're a country of 331 million people. The number of people whose careers have been destroyed by it, I mean, it can't be a 20-year-old tweet, right? I don't think Twitter was around 20 years ago, but whenever. The number of people that that's happening to is very small. There are cases where it, it probably makes sense, where an, an organization, that, where sometimes comments are so vile that any association is toxic. Other times, these are youthful indiscretions, mistakes, views that someone has recanted and said, I don't stand by it. So my view on those situations has been, if the argument is that, you remember, 331 million people in the United States, if the argument is that even thousands of people are having that happen to them, I've not seen the evidence for that. If the argument is we should be thoughtful and careful whenever something like this happens and really ask ourselves, what was the context of what was said? Is this relevant to this person and their role that they are in today? I think that we, we can't take a one-size-fits-all approach to that. But to, to get to the first part of the question, what I reject is not the concept that when the pendulum swings far one way, it eventually swings back the other way. I, you know, in some uh, general sense, I, I agree with that. What I reject is the idea that things are uniquely out of control, that the culture is changing so much faster now than it has before. I mean, these are very similar arguments to what we heard in the pre and during Vietnam War era of hippie culture and counterculture and drugs and free love and all of this stuff. And it, it just, it's one of these tropes that keeps coming up. And again, I think people who spend a lot of their time on Reddit and Twitter will overstate the degree to which these things are happening. Or, or in other words, uh, when someone goes on Fox News and brings up certain evidence, a certain incidents, those are often very isolated cases that are being exaggerated. And, and sometimes people are posing this kind of straw man um, argument that, that, that it does not hold in, in, uh, when, when putting at a large scale. Um, I, I tend to agree with that. But I guess uh, since you are someone on the left, and I guess me personally, I'm also someone probably tending towards the left, I guess, um, what would you feel like to be uh, an urgent problem of the, the left right now? Because it, obviously when uh, people that are on the right, when they watch Fox News, uh, or when people that are in the middle who often agree with the left, but you know, somewhat counterculture, maybe are not entirely uh, agreeing with the left, when they talk, it often seems it's like, oh my God, there's, there's uh, Barry Weiss uh, re resigned from the New York Times. There's this kind of uh, narrative-driven journalism. Oh, oh my God, there's a censorship of, of academics in, on, on campus. It, it all comes back to this kind of discourse. That's why I guess going back to my first question to you at the beginning of the interview, which is the, the state of the social discourse and sociopolitical discourse in our country today. Um, do, do you think there's, there's a problem on the left when it comes to this kind of discourse? I think there are problems on the left. And, and so I identify them and I talk about them on my program. So some problems on the left right now. And again, whenever you talk about a problem on the left, you're talking about a problem among some on the left. It, it's not, if the, it's yes. not in total, yes. because still, for the most part, I, you know, the ideals that I support are, are on the left. But problems that you can find on the left include um, 
a sort of uh, apathy that can set in uh, or a, a feeling of um, the inability to accomplish anything when things don't go exactly our way. We saw this in 2016 when, when Bernie Sanders did not win the primary fairly or unfairly. You had people who were saying, ah, you know, if Hillary and Trump are two sides of the same coin and it sort of doesn't even really matter if I vote. What the Supreme Court, eh, eh, I don't think Hillary would choose people that are significantly different than the people Trump would choose. That has been widely disconfirmed by what we're seeing right now. And that is an aspect of some on the left that I think is very problematic. Um, I think that the American left sometimes has a blind spot uh, when it comes to some economic ideas where, you know, I'm a social democrat in the Northern European tradition for sure, um, but having an understanding of, uh, you know, neoclassical economics, Keynesian economics, it's not crazy. It doesn't actually work in reality as described, but I think it's important to understand it to then add behavioral economics to it and add the, these other things. Um, I think that some of the social movements that we've seen, like the Women's March, will allow in elements that I think are completely destructive. There were anti-Semitic elements in Women's March leadership, which completely to me went counter to the stated goals of the organization. And the left is not, to my, some on the left are not quick enough to call that out and to say, we don't need that and it's counterproductive. I think sometimes on foreign policy, there will be people on the left who, you know, whether it's on Syria or Russia or China or whatever, you know, they, they, they sometimes are maybe missing the boat a little bit. So yeah, I mean, there's no shortage of criticisms uh, of, of the left and they're different than my criticisms of the right. But to go back to maybe where we started, the criticism that at, at some kind of systemic level, the left has gone crazy demanding woke cultural change. If you look at the Democratic Party, which right now still is the locus of power for what is ostensibly the left in the United States, maybe that'll change. That's not what is represented in the Democratic Party. Uh, and I guess just to cite your podcast uh, episode from literally yesterday, September 22nd, uh, you were saying that the far left does not give uh, the quote unquote centrist left like Joe Biden enough credit about how progressive Biden's policies, how much meat there actually is when it comes to uh, improving people's lives and, and shift to the Overton window and, and such and so on. So I, I, forgive me for, for being so overgeneralizing when it comes to using the term quote unquote left, um, but uh, maybe we can talk slightly more focused about the leftist media. I mean, all, all the outlets from New York Times two independent podcasts like yours. Uh, do you think the, the leftist media has become, this is again, a very inaccurate word, but quote unquote lazier after Trump's election in the, in the sense that because of Trump's personality flaws and because of GOP's very unreasonable use of, of partisan politics, it's, it's just so easy right now to simply group all their policies uh, by the administration or on the right under this big umbrella of being, whether it's racist or xenophobic. In other words, there are cultural scripts that I see the leftist media often use to fit in. For example, if Trump bans TikTok or, or WeChat, um, instead of talking about the policy, let's first talk about how he's a racist, which I think is not very helpful. 
So I, uh, forgive me, I have not seen one story saying Trump banning TikTok is racist. Uh, I'm not saying that those stories don't exist, but I've, I've, not, seen, uh, I've not seen any. Um, I think that there are times when those narratives are correct and times where they are wrong. So Trump's position on healthcare, uh, I don't think is racist. I don't think it's xenophobic. I think it's just bad. I think it's uh, unempathetic. I think it's bad economically. Uh, I think it's immoral. Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't think that it's necessary to uh, sort of go to those other characterizations. Um, from everything we know, from what Michael Cohen and others have said, and the way Donald Trump seems to relate to minorities, he's probably a guy who's not particularly enlightened on uh, racial issues, I think, to, to, to put it lightly. And I think that that's a fair criticism to make. Now, even if he were, his policy on healthcare would still be a disaster. So I think maybe what sometimes, I mean, not to go totally meta, what sometimes is lazy is, and I'm not turning this around on you, but what sometimes is lazy is to try to make such a vague critique or, or general critique of leftist media. I mean, even saying the New York Times is leftist media. Listen, the New York Times does not like Donald Trump. The opinion pages do not like Donald Trump, 100%. But the New York Times has an investigative journalism department that is, is uh, you, you know, top, top notch. It's not failing the way Donald Trump says. They're doing better than ever. And I don't think they're doing better than ever because they're lazily saying everything Trump does is racist. I think they're doing good investigative journalism. Yes, yes, um, I, I completely agree. And I guess to quickly uh, think, drag myself out of the hole, I dug for myself. I, I did not mean to say Trump's ban of, of, of TikTok or, or, or certain apps per se are, are, are racist, but I guess some people, sometimes people say the fact that Trump banned WeChat is unnecessary aggression towards China or towards the Chinese people or whatever, but such as, but we don't Well, that to... may be, that may, <laughs> that doesn't mean that it's xenophobic. I mean, there's a, you know, Trump has embroiled himself in a misguided trade war while continuing to use terms like China virus and Kung flu. And now on top of that, you could certainly see some of these other actions as part of that. It doesn't mean it is in and of itself, you know, a racist or xenophobic action, but it's certainly part of, of the, the mobilization that he's participating in with regard to China. Yes, yes. And I guess his whole per persona of, yes. Um, can we talk a little bit more, I guess, about the, the election? You um, famously said that when you talk to people that you really disagree with, when you try to lower down the, the, the temperature, you often ask, how do you think I came to my position? What evidence, if I present to you, would bring you to my side? So maybe I could ask you, what things, if any, would you need to see in order for you to vote for a Republican president in either in this election or, or in next? Well, I mean, the thing is, so what you're suggesting is that Donald Trump may have secretly done a lot of things that are great that we just don't know about, right? I mean, that's ultimately what you're saying. This is a bit of a different situation because the reason I'm voting for Joe Biden and not Donald Trump is I've seen what Donald Trump did for the last four years. So when you say what could change my mind, had Donald Trump had Done a completely a different presidency then, <laughs> right. but at, at this point, it's, you know, if Trump cures cancer in the next six weeks, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of like, like a, a, a kind of wacky thought experiment this close to the election. But as a general principle, 
all it would take for me to vote for a Republican over a Democrat in any particular race is for the Republican to be better suited and a better option on policy. I see. Uh, or I, I guess the, what I was tr really trying to get at is not, is not rather what would make you vote for Donald Trump in the next 40 days or so, but rather uh, what changes would you like to see in the Republican Party that you would feel like, okay, this is a party that I might feel slightly more comfortable uh, uh, agreeing with in more policies. What are some of the things that you would like to see? Oh, sure. I mean, if they completely change their economic policy, <laughs> and if they completely change their approach to climate change, if they completely change their approach to the, you know, the military industrial complex. I mean, these are, these are really big things. You right. know? I, I think that the, the more sort of realistic thing would be that you could have a local race where you have you know, maybe an establishment centrist Democrat who's getting nothing done <laughs> and not showing up. And then maybe you have kind of an up and coming Republican who's socially liberal and maybe a little bit to my right economically, but that for strategic reasons, I might prefer, you know, like that's a more right. realistic scenario, I think, for me. Uh, so zooming in a little bit on this particular election in the next 40 days or so. Um, how confident are you that the election and the potential transfer of power will happen peacefully or smoothly? Because there's so many studies who have come out and said, uh, short of a Biden landslide, we'll likely end up with a constitutional crisis that lasts until the inauguration, you know, with violence in the streets, severely disrupted administrative transition, and, and probably a uh, years-long court battle just because of the mail-in vote and then coronavirus that, that is really happening right now. And, and um, and you've talked about this on your show, but I, I would love to hear a little bit more of, I guess, your solution or because I guess one, one time on the show, you said the Biden team really needs to talk with their lawyers and figure out a way to, to, to battle this in the courts. But it, it just seems so difficult to me because if the Republicans have this somewhat irrational suspicion of mail-in fraud and, and, and they would try to declare the, the victory on the election night and most of the mail-in ballots are, you know, the blue sea. Uh, yeah, it, it seems inconceivable to me how this, this will play out smoothly. I think it's very unlikely that it plays out smoothly. I mean, I just, I just don't think it's very likely. <laughs> now, what that means in practice, it could mean different things. To what degree are we, are we talking about? You know, so there's a, there's a bunch of different things that I think are likely to happen, and it could be some or all of these different things. Uh, the simplest would be that uh, the, the red mirage scenario yes. where early in-person voting favors Trump, and uh, if all of the absentee ballots were counted, some of some states would switch to Biden. But at midnight on election day, Trump's army of lawyers, which we know he already has retained, will do everything they can to stop the counting of absentee ballots. That's one scenario. Uh, another scenario that is in the Atlantic this week is that um, typically each state has electors on standby for each candidate. So if Trump wins Michigan, certain electors go to DC. I don't know if they'll go this year, but you know they go to DC to vote for Trump. If Biden wins Michigan, Democratic electors go. There's a new technical argument that has been suggested to the Trump campaign, which is, you know, regardless of who wins Michigan, Donald Trump could still say, send the Republican electors this is going to be a legal battle. It could be a complete and total mess. And, you know, people can read more about that in, in the Atlantic this week. Um, 
I, I, I don't know what to expect. I think it's going to be unlike any transition period we've ever seen. Now, the other scenario would be if Trump wins by a landslide, right? And in that case, if it's believable that Trump won by a landslide, despite the polling, um, that may be less, uh, it might be more smooth. Um, but I, I do think that there's going to be some degree of friction, to, to put it lightly. So most of the polling results we're seeing right now uh, suggest that Biden are probably leading by double digits and he'll likely win the, the, the general election. So let's just say that Trump will do everything in his power to not concede the election. Uh, and therefore, what happens partly would depend on whether his party backs him up if he attempts to challenge results and such and so on. So if Biden, if there is a Biden victory and the Trump uh, refuses to acknowledge it. Do you see the Republican Party finally setting up to him or accepting defeat? And I guess I, I asked this question in a, in a dramatic change of context because uh, Justice Ginsburg just passed away very unfortunately. And, and uh, we saw that Mitt Romney uh, yesterday, Tuesday, uh, uh, September 22nd, decided that he will vote for Trump's nominee, which showed this tremendous and quick rallying behind the president's back even for someone like Mitt Romney, because it aligns with his interest that he sees conservative principles and policies to be implemented, despite his own personal distaste of Trump's personal character. So I guess in that sense, would the party still stand behind Trump for the party interest, even though they know, okay, this is not the right thing to do? I think they will. And just one clarification, all Mitt Romney has said so far is that he would be willing to have the vote. He didn't say, yes. I will vote. We don't even know who the nominee yeah. is yet. I think yes. that's important clarification. Uh, I mean, one thing to remember is that there's not, there are some polls with Joe Biden having a double digit lead. The average lead is seven for Joe Biden right now. And that's still substantial, but 12 becoming two by election day is not super likely. Seven becoming two is more plausible. And so I think that the, the important thing is, you know, there's always these discussions of, does my vote really matter? Uh, my state will definitely go blue, so I don't need to vote. Or my state will definitely go red, so I don't need to vote. That's like the exact wrong idea. It's never been more wrong than this election. And I think that we still have to count every vote and everybody needs to figure out what, what is their path forward. Now, Whatever the results are, if Donald Trump claims victory, um, I think that it, if, if it is even remotely credible that there was an irregularity, even if it wouldn't really have flipped the results, I believe that Republicans will overwhelmingly fall in line and say, yeah, 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 this this uh, something Trump's right. I think by and large, you're going to see them fall in line. I guess the greater question here would be, uh, so many have said that the Republican Party has effectively become the Trump Party. To what extent do you think this is because of Trump's alignment with core conservative interests, such as the tax cuts, such as court appointments and people like Ben Shapiro, who used to did not like Trump and now say, I would vote for Trump because he has enacted conservative policies. To what extent do you think it's because of that versus the inability of, you know, quote unquote, true conservatives to, to stand up against Trump? I, uh, I don't know that most conservatives really think Trump has actually done much on policy. I think that they've basically put their eggs in two baskets. One is the, we definitely don't want Democrats controlling anything, right? So we don't want Democrats in the White House. We don't want Democrats choosing Supreme Court justices. We don't want Democrats controlling the Senate. That is so powerful for many Republicans that they give Trump a pass on policy. And then number two, judges. 
it's not just that Trump is likely to get a third Supreme Court justice, hundreds of lower court judges. And it is something that is going to shape the justice system in the United States for, for decades. And I think that because of that, they just, you know, they'll either defend or just not mention the insanity of the things that Donald Trump does. I think it's that simple. Um, we, we talked about the, the statistics of um, uh, Biden's, you know, seven point lead over Trump. We've talked about the, the scenarios of mail-in voting and such and so on. Uh, I know you are not a probability theorist or statistician, but <laughs> how would you predict uh, the actual chance of Biden clinching this presidency in this cycle? I mean, given all the instability and turmoil that will actually happen. So given that I'm not a statistician, <laughs> but rather a political realist, I believe we have to consider it um, uh, essentially 50-50. Wow. I mean, it's, listen, you know, what does it mean to say it's 70-30 for Biden? 30 is very high. If you yeah. run 100 simulations that one person wins 30 of them, that's a lot. That's really a lot. So, so I think that in practical terms, either candidate could come away the victor is the only way to approach this. Yes. Um, I, I guess we're coming to a close soon because I know you have to go. Uh, are you optimistic or pessimistic uh, about the, the future of this nation? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not particularly optimistic right now, <laughs> like in this moment. And certainly what happens on November 4th could, you know, it'll Sway be it. a slight adjustment of the trajectory that we're expecting. But um, I still maintain the general idea that in the next, that if you look 20 years from now, things will be better in 20 years than they are today. That, that's, that's my very general sense, how we get there exactly. And it may be, you know, meandering in some way, it may be a meandering path, but that's where I am. And I think that there's just kind of a wishful thinking to some degree, but also when you, you know, if you look at most metrics every 20 years, most things have improved over the last 20 years in some general sense. There are still problems to fix. We do have a significantly powerful, you know, ideological right-wing movement in the United States, but there are many institutions that, you know, have, have pushed the ball forward in many areas of life that affect our day-to-day -day. globally. This is not like the utopian Steven Pinker, crime is down, poverty's down, things are, but it, it, it is true that in a sense, um, you know, life expectancy on balance is growing abject poverty is decreasing. I know that there's counter arguments individually to every one of these aspects, but that's what's sort of keeping me moderately optimistic right now. Uh, to what extent is your pessimism or, or optimism affected by your day-to-day -day engagement with politics? Because I know if you are in a political environment, within the stock markets where things are happening at a very high frequency rate and, and so much noise and there's so much crazy things going on, how do you maintain your sanity? How do, you, how do you derive your conclusions about the long-term development of this country from more fundamental things rather than... The yeah, I mean, it's, it's, again, it's reading history, sociology, psychology, economics, and looking, looking at broader trends and not uh, looking at, you know, a daytime financial television that tells you how the Dow did today. <laughs> I mean, it's really about filtering out the noise. It really is. And, um, you know, taking three days a week where I'm not really following politics and I'm reading history and economics and doing other stuff. I mean, I think 
the interaction with the political world makes me pessimistic because unfortunately there are so many uninformed people that I come across. And I say, if this is 60 million people in the country, <laughs> that's not so good. Um, but then you look at the broader zoom out and things look a little less bad, at least hopefully. I hope you don't walk away from this interview and think that if this is the Princeton student, then we're, we're really, <laughs> so I, I guess two, two quick questions at the end. One is what would be one contrarian view that you hold that, people on the left or, or might disagree with. And the, and the other one is since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, I just wanna ask you at the end, what would be your, your punchline for, for this interview, so? So, I mean, I think contrarian, there's a lot of people on the left who still believe 77 cents on the dollar to go back to our pay gap <laughs> thing. And when I talk about it's really 91, there's a lot of people who just say, no, you're wrong. And um, so, so just for sake of argument, I, I would pick that, I guess. And, and your policy punchline? Oh. I, I don't know. I'm so bad. With, I mean, listen, my show is called The David Pakman Show because I couldn't come up with anything more uh, creative. My policy punchline is, um, uh, you know, things are pretty good in Norway. <laughs> Let's look to Norway. Let's look at some of the things Norway is doing, I guess, is what my policy punchline is. Well, th well thank you so much, Mr. Pakman. Uh, this concludes this episode of, of Policy Punchline. Please uh, go visit... Uh, Mr. Pacman's uh, show, David Pacman, P-A-K-M-A-N.com. You can subscribe, become a subscriber for, for five or $6 a, a month. Uh, you can w w listen to him on all kinds of platforms and a uh, truly fascinating interview. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for doing it. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.